This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. I'm looking forward to the promises of artificial intelligence, the promised benefits in preventative medicine, reducing the risk to humans for dangerous or dirty work, augmenting our lives so that perhaps people that are blind could see or spinal injured people could walk again. That all sounds great to me. But as with all tech, there are unintended costs and consequences. My guest this week is engineer, entrepreneur, and author Martin Ford. Martin's written a number of books on the future of work, the most recent of which is called Rule of the Robots. Martin says there is always disruption when profoundly new technology enters our life. For example, when we mechanized much of agriculture, people moved on to different jobs. But this time, it's different. These systems won't augment people. It's going to completely replace them, and not just in a industry, in all industry. And the disruption will happen both to blue collar, white collar, and it will happen so fast and so completely that if we aren't preparing now, we're in for a really rough patch. Martin's position isn't universally held. Many economists disagree with him, but it is a compelling discussion and something you and I should listen to. Please enjoy my conversation with Martin Ford on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one, the QTS Experience. Martin Ford, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. My great pleasure. Well, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I, I discovered you, gosh, it's been a few years now, when you were on, um, I believe it was the Dave Rubin show, and I, and I listened to your conversation with David, and I've heard you many times since then. Um, one of the more recent ones was with uh, Andrew Yang. I thought that was a great conversation. I've listened to many of your uh, presentations. I have both books. And I suppose we should start at the beginning. Uh, some of my audience probably has not um, heard of you, or maybe we'll just give them a refresher you wrote uh, the two books that I'm most familiar with, Rise of the Robots and Rule of the Robots. And it caught my imagination because we have a lot of conversations in the show about future technology. Artificial intelligence, of course, is all over that conversation. And depending upon who I'm talking to, it's wildly optimistic. And we seem to focus on here's the benefits that um, you know a cognitive uh, technology could help us, starting with the narrow and moving to the general at some point in the future, or the opposite of that, which is, um, you know, Katie, bar the door, uh, the red coats are coming. And what I've really enjoyed about your conversation is, is it strikes me that you're an optimist, but you're also a realist. Like, here's how the world of this technology is impacting us in a way that perhaps we're not, we've never been familiar with before. And here's my evidence on why I believe what I believe. So by introduction, um, I thought we would start there. What first compelled you to write? Are, are you a writer by training? What compelled you to put these books together? No, I'm, I'm an engineer by training. And uh, I was running a small, a very small software company here in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I started writing about this uh, with my first book way back in 2009, uh, and that's the point that I really uh, began to focus on. Mostly, the the issue I focused on was the imp the potential impact of of these technologies, robotics and artificial intelligence, on employment. And and I wrote uh, 
a self-published book called Delights in the Tunnel way back in 2009. And thought a lot about that based in part on my own experience running a business, but also in terms of what I saw around me and in terms of what I was seeing with the advance of uh, computers and, uh, you know, generally, and, and also artificial intelligence, which I saw back, you know, back, back then I saw it as something that, that was going to be very important in the future, which is now of course, come, come to pass. Um, but my, my view on this and, and, you know, there's always been a big debate in terms of the potential impact of, of automation, uh, and technology on employment. Um, and the standard line is that it's not something you really have to worry about because the economy always adapts, you know, that, that, Technology destroys jobs, but it also creates jobs. And over time, you know, people transition into new roles and, and everything works out fine. And history does in fact show that that's been the case, at least in the long run. Right. I mean, there certainly have been technological disruptions, right, at, at times. Right. Like, um, but, but over the long run, it seems to work out. But as I focused on this, the, the basic, you know, premise that, that I came to embrace is that eventually technology is going to get to the point where that's not going to be the case anymore, where we're really going to run into a problem where essentially, you know, machines that, that get smarter and smarter at some point are going to begin to match or exceed the capabilities of, of the average workers doing all kinds of things. And, and at that point, it's going to be really hard for people to make that transition to do something new, something that's marketable, you know, something that, 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 automated systems can do, at least for a significant percentage of the population. And that's basically been the theme of, of you know, most of the books I've written. I've written a total of four now. Mm. Um, and that was the main theme of Rise of the Robots, right, which I published in, was my uh, second book published in 2015, which is the one that really got the most attention. Right. Um, and that's that's basically what it argues that we're we're I mean the subtitle of that book is technology and the threat of a jobless future right so right <laughs> the idea is that eventually not not now obviously but um, as the years and decades pass we're going to get into a situation where there potentially just aren't enough jobs to go around at least for typical average people with you know average intelligence and 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 skill sets and personality traits and so forth. How did you, um, and we're going to dive into that for sure. I, I'm curious when you were sitting uh, in your office and saying to yourself, I, I really need to write a book. That did, did that come out of a need to just do research for yourself? I'm curious, how did you go about sort of gathering the data that you gathered that informed um, your perspective that you wrote a book? How, how'd that happen? Well, I mean, writing a book is something I always wanted to do. I, I mean, I'm, I'm someone that really likes reading and likes books. So I always right. imagined someday I would write a book. I didn't know what the book would right. be about. Right. Um, but yeah, way back in 2008, you know, remember this is 2008, 2009. So it's during the financial crisis. So sure. sort of, I was focusing a lot on the economy. I was running on a small software company. I saw, I'd seen over the previous years in my own little business, how, technology had shifted roles. I mean, when I started running my software company, uh, software was shipped on, on, on CD-ROMs, right? And, right? and there was a printed manual and it was a, it was a physical package that had right. to be into the customer, right? And there were a lot of jobs there. I mean, I, I outsourced all of that to another company. Are you telling me you missed the days of the box full of three and a half inch floppy right. disks? No, no and... I, I, I don't miss it, but there, there were a lot of people employed to handle all of that. And right. 
over time, of course, that evaporated. The, co the company that I outsourced that work to actually went out of business because you know there, there was no nothing to do anymore. Right. And you know, in many ways, it became obvious that this is going to be a continuing transition. In part because uh, things are going more digital, and and the physical aspect of it is disappearing. But more generally than that, just because you know, machines are also becoming smarter and able to do many other things as well. So that's what I guess got me thinking about it, that that in conjunction with the ongoing financial crisis. I mean, the, and the fact that there was a, a lot of unemployment then is I, I guess what made me think of it. And I decided that I would uh, sort of delve into this and, and write a book on it. How did you dive into it? Did you just, I, did you just I, Google? I mostly use Google to, 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 to research, you know, right. to find, relevant articles and um, papers, you know, written by economists and things like right. that. And that, that's basically what I, data, that, that's right. what I'm based on. It's, doing research is, you know, in the internet age, a, a lot easier than it, it used to be, so. Which is probably one of the people we're gonna talk about, you know, people that you could do research from before, and now you just say, hey, Siri, who, you know, tell me about this or tell me about that. But coming back to this, is, so now you've gone through this process, you've decided, you want, one, you wanna write a book, you're living in this circumstance, an economic circumstance as a small business owner, your spidey sense tells you um, to confirm what you're seeing. And as you go through the research and you start sharing it with your peer group, which is, I'm sure, technologists and engineers, and then it expands out to economists, did everybody embrace and say, yeah, you're right? Or did you get any pushback by different sectors or people groups that said, man, to sort of where your, your preamble, where you started, we, we always have this disruption, but it always works out in the end. No, I, I got a lot of, you know, the, the majority of people um, really didn't buy into it. Again, remember, this is back in 2009. Right. Um, very much the conventional wisdom then was that, you know, technological unemployment is not something you need to worry about in the long run, right? That, that uh, uh, you know, people people who worried about this would be called neo-Luddites because... <laughs> of course. You know, it, go go it, destroy you know, some weaving. It, it wasn't something that... that um, would be good for your career, I think, if you were an economist at that point, worrying worrying about something like this. There were very few actual economists that really embraced this idea or worried about it. Um, so I was kind of coming at it from the outside, and and yeah, most people didn't really embrace it. Is it as simple as that? We've always overcome this when you when you think of an economist or a, or a sector because I still run into that all the time, even myself. I. You know, I think of myself as a, as a technologist. I've certainly, I grew up in IT in the 80s and 90s, and I've been in the data center business um, since the uh, early 2000s. And um, I'm, I'm surprised almost every day at the growth of the sector and, what, and what's going on. At the same time, it seems like a continuing theme that's evolving. It doesn't seem remarkably different other than scale and speed, things like that. So when a, I, I can appreciate groups of people saying, hold on, we've... You know, when we push people off the farm, we push them into factories. Or when we've, you know, we've moved this group or that group, we've we've always overcome as these disruptions have happened. So, how are what is it now, 12, 13 years later, after that first book, are the people that initially struggled to believe it? Are they believing more significantly, or is it still uh, a pretty good? Um, you know, a case that you have to make, no, look, this really is a trend and here's the facts as I understand them. I think that there's more openness to it now than there was then for sure, as people have seen, you know, some of the, the you know, some of the really amazing technologies that are 
that are now there, but absolutely, there's still a lot of skepticism. I would, I would guess uh, if you did a survey, most economists would probably not agree with, with this concern. They would probably say, you know, we don't need to worry about technological employment. So it's still, I think, pretty much the conventional wisdom. And it, and it should be noted that right now we're in the middle of a labor shortage, right? Right. Not, not, not high unemployment. That's something that could change very quickly if we get into a recession. Right. Um, and then maybe, you know, attitudes will shift, right. you know, as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a continuing debate. And I'm, you know, I'm happy with that. I mean, I, I, I absolutely respect the people on the other side. I mean, they've got good arguments that, that this is not a concern, right? So this is not something that is um, an ideology, you know, where, where it's just something I believe. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in having a discussion about it and then and, and looking at both sides. Um, and again, my, my argument is really focused on the long run, not, not right. that it's going to happen next year. But right. I, I, can certainly cite a number of examples that would suggest that we're clearly moving in this direction. And maybe within 10 years or so, it will become more evident. As I was preparing for this conversation, one, I found a, a really interesting article by Gartner. Um, and it was uh, in 2020. And it said, look, AI is going to create more jobs than it loses. And it's an interesting article. I, I, I read it and I I don't know that I disagree with it. I don't know that I agree with it. It was just that, you know, they're laying out their case. And then for whatever reason, I was thinking about, have I seen some of the things that you talk about in my personal life? And interestingly enough, just the other day, the garbage disposal folks came down our street and where there used to be a truck with um, two guys hanging off of the back. Um, and they kind of had this, and I've, you know, for decades, I've seen sort of this, uh, routine. They pull up to a house or a cul-de-sac and they scatter and they're grabbing the bins and they're doing their thing and they're throwing them in the truck. And, you know, it's, it's almost like a dance, like a choreography. When the, when the truck came in the other day, I just for once really noticed those guys aren't there anymore. They have a claw that comes out, grabs, they, they've, they've transformed all of the buckets that we have, uh, that we put our waste out in. They're a standard format now. And they, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen these things and they, they have a, a certain mechanical way that they work, and the truck just comes by, grabs it, dumps it, does its thing, goes on. It's as efficient as um, those two guys. It doesn't handle the outliers that great, so they have a truck that comes later in the week to pick up something that was missed or something that isn't easily handled. But we're learning to conform to this, because to who wants their stuff sitting out on the curb for an extra day or two? to get it into the appropriate bin or an extra bin so that the truck can do its thing. And I, as, as I was preparing for this, I thought, wow, there's an example of, I don't know if those guys who are on the back are now driving or they're doing something else somewhere else, or maybe they're part of the work crew, but there's not 200 trucks now running around on a Thursday or Friday in my township with crews hanging off the back. It's about the same number of trucks with claws. I think that's kind of the point you're making. Look, mechanization, automation, those are the early stages. And when you add intelligence with AI, it's just going to, this is going to be an exponential ramp and it's going to catch a lot of people by surprise. Right. And, and, and that's a good example. I mean, a lot of people, when they think about this, they imagine that there's going to be a robot that's going to step in and do exactly what the person is doing, right? That, that you're going to see a, a truck. <clears throat> going along with two, you know, robots on the back that get, get out and, right. and the, the bins. And of course, that's not what happens. What happens is that portions of jobs get automated. It's really more about automating tasks 
you know, the specific things that people are doing. Right. Um, rarely will you see an entire job be completely automated. That will happen sometimes, like like a toll booth operator, for example. It can be right. completely automated. But for most jobs, it's it's some portion of the job gets automated. Um, but then what happens is the jobs get redefined, right? Because man management will now look at that and they'll say, hey, I've got two people there and half of what each of them is is doing is going to be automated. Obviously, I'm going to be able to consolidate those two jobs into one job, right? And so the, mm -hmm. the, the way work is organized um, changes with, with the new technology. But but the, I think the relentless trend is going to be to reduce the number of people as, as you do that and make things more efficient. And that's something that's going to happen not just in one place, mm. like, for example, when agriculture mechanized, there was a huge impact on this one sector, right? Right. But, but with artificial intelligence and robotics, that's going to happen pretty much everywhere. And it's and it's also not going to be just what we would think of as blue collar jobs, like like you know collecting the garbage. It's it's in many cases the impact is going to be even greater on white collar jobs. You know the kind of jobs where you sit in front of a computer and you manipulate information in some way. Um, right. That's easier to automate than than the big robotic claw in the back of the garbage truck, right? Which is you know, expensive and, and 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 difficult to 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 get it to work consistently. Um, if you're just talking about software to deal with with uh, writing a report or doing some analysis, that that's actually much easier. So white collar jobs are going to be heavily impacted by this. Yeah, we've got uh, coming on the show in a few weeks one of uh, chief architects for a, a company called Rev AI, and they are amazing at. Um, speech to transcription services. And I'm really curious to see how AI plays in that world because it's a lot more complicated than people think. And how does that in extend into speech to speech translation and some other things? But again, in preparing for this uh, conversation, one of the things that um, Dan Karakov and I talked about kind of in, as we were considering having this meeting was he was just laying out for me how accurate these tools are now because they have these data sets that can do these things. And, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, wow, this just, um, before I would have used, and I do still sometimes use, and they have in their program humans that uh, enhance this, but they can get a volume of transcription done at very high accuracy rates. And then they have a human sort of spot check. And I got to believe that 20 years from now or two hours from now, whatever it is, that their data sets will get so big and so good that um, don't even know how many people I need to actually sign off on and work through accents and work through unusual words, that they'll be able to hear the English language spoken in 12 different dialects and and still get it right almost every time, and a, a machine will do that. Yeah, I mean, it's getting good already. Actually, my latest book, uh, Rule of the Robots, a lot of it I dictated to an app on my smartphone. Rather than sitting down and trying to write it, I just dictated it to the smartphone and it transcribed it into text. Right. It wasn't perfect, but it took me a lot less time to just fix up, you know, the mistakes than it would to 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 write it all from scratch. So, so yeah. it's it's already a, a very practical tool, you know, in terms of, you know, transcription and and of course language translation is even more right. impressive in terms of what I mean. It used to be that if you wanted to translate even one paragraph in a foreign language, you'd know you would have had to hire someone to do that, right? right. It would have taken hours or days to get to get the answer. Now that's available instantaneously for for you know basically any language, even even obscure languages, right? So it's yeah. already it, having a very big practical impact. 
he's uh, one of the things we're going to talk about. His father is, um, I don't know if it's both of his parents or just his father is Russian and um, has gotten good at, or not, not got good, he's an expert at translating English to Russian, Russian to English in poetry. And one of the complexities in their world is it's one thing to, to translate language, it's another to get these shades and these, um, in, you know, cultural inferences. And um, he will say, look, it's, it's serious work, but it's coming. You know, these tools are going to be able to do this with, uh, with enough training and enough data. And on the one hand, I think that's really cool. On the other hand, I think it's kind of scary. I have a quick question for you and your transcription did um, when you used that app? Did it suggest any autocorrect words that when you read back and went, why, "Where did it draw that from?" How, how did? Because I use autocorrect on my phone to text, and every now and then people will reach back out to me and say, "What? What did you mean by this?" And it's not just that the syntax wrong is wrong; it's a completely sometimes inappropriate word. And I'm wondering where in the universe did that show up from? Because now I'm embarrassed. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that happens. And because my book was about artificial intelligence, there are a fair number of technical words in there, right? That, right. that the app didn't know what to make of. So it would, it would, you know, substitute, you know, something completely different. But even even then, it's, you, you know, it's still not that difficult to fix it up. So I, I, it's still very useful. You know, as you think about this, uh, just to back up for a second, one of the, the one of your main points, one of the biggest points that you make is... Um, AI is going to be this, what we call general, what you call a general purpose technology, and you compare it in some ways to electricity. And I love the book by Nick Carr that's probably from about a decade ago called The Big Switch. And he was talking about um, in the way that electricity has changed our world, when we, once we became a central station, we went from the production on a factory site to the central stations and um, this utility was wildly disruptive, and yet it's, you know, in, the, in very few things have impacted beneficially humans greater than uh, electricity, one could argue. And, and he was correlating it to data and the things that we'll use with data and how data is valuable and it's commodity and how it needs to be protected, and I thought it was really interesting. And you make the point about, look, this is a general use not dissimilar in some ways to electricity, but in other ways, wildly different than electricity. Can you help us to understand that a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, the, the argument I make is that, you know, AI and, and, and you know, more broadly, as, as, as Nick Carr was saying, information technology is becoming a utility that, that has the kind of reach and scale that electricity has in the sense that, I mean, throughout the day, you know, almost everything you do relies to some extent on electricity. I mean, that's why it's a disaster when the electric power goes out, right? It, <laughs> yeah. it, it's everywhere. It touches every aspect of our economy, our society. Almost everything is in some way dependent on it. Um, and, you know, I think AI is going to become ubiquitous like that. It will be integrated into everything. We will come to depend on it, um, you know, enormously. It will touch every aspect of society and culture and the economy. Um, every organization will become reliant on on AI. We'd be, you know, basically impossible to run a competitive business without heavy heavy dependence on on artificial intelligence. Um, so that's where the the analogy comes from. But then the way in which it's it's of course very different is that electricity is a is a commodity, right? It's fungible. It's it's consistent, standardized. Um, doesn't matter where you get your electric power, it's pretty much the same. Doesn't matter when you get it. 10 years ago, 
the electricity you got from plugging something into the wall was exactly the same as what you got get today, right? right. Uh, whereas with artificial intelligence, you know, it's the complete opposite of that. I mean, artificial intelligence is constantly evolving. We might even say accelerating in its capability. It's going to get ever closer to what we would think of as human level intelligence, where it really can at some point begin to think in a general way like a human being and perhaps beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there are many different differences depending on exactly what kind of product you access and so forth. So, you know, AI is going to be much more dynamic and much more disruptive and, and especially much more unpredictable mm. than, than a commodity like electricity. So it's, it's combining this, this disruption and, and lack of predictability with the reach and the scale of, of electricity. So I think in many ways it's going to be, you know, a more disruptive, uh, impact over the long run, perhaps even than, than electricity. One of the things I was thinking about is electricity in the beginning was really, it was only available to certain commercial, you know, big factories, commercial entities, or the very wealthy or those in the inner city where the original central stations were. I mean, it was difficult to extend it out. It wasn't, um, now we don't even think about it. it the infrastructure is so um, pervasive that in fact we notice it when it's not there but we really don't notice it when it is there when you think about just from an advantage perspective you think we're going to go through those same growing pains of whether you're in industry or you're in the um, consumer side of it that i'm going to have an opportunity certainly at nation state we talk about this all the time other nations emphasis on ai and its role in everything from facial recognition to social scoring and all these different ways that it can either enhance their uh, trade position or their military position or whatever. Setting nation state stuff aside, just as individual users, do you think we're gonna go through that same growing pain of access to AI or is it, um, have we learned our lesson with how we've distributed electricity? To some extent, I think it'll be the same process. I mean, even now, people will comment that, you know, access to truly powerful AI is pretty well concentrated, right, in companies like Google and Facebook. Um, right. But, uh, you know, whereas with electricity, as you said, to, to really roll it out to everyone, mm -hmm. you had to build enormous amounts of physical in infrastructure, right, all the, the transmission wires and you know, generating plants and, and, and so forth, which, mm -hmm. which is a huge undertaking. With artificial intelligence, really a lot of that infrastructure is already there, right? The infrastructure is cloud computing facilities right. which exist. It's, it's mobile devices, which provides, everyone has already got, right? Which provides direct access to it. So I would expect that that uh, transition to happen faster. I think that, that it, you know, very rapidly is becoming accessible to everyone. Uh, not just in terms of actually being able to access these resources, but also in terms of being able to um, utilize artificial intelligence. The, the sort of the entry barrier is getting lower. I mean, at one point, in order to work with AI at all, you probably needed to have a PhD in computer science, right? right. But the tools for developing applications and deploying AI and, and, and so forth are getting a lot better. And there are standardized systems that anyone can use like Amazon's facial recognition system, right? It's right. pretty easy to set up. So that's going to progress and it's going to become much more accessible and, and universal and, and ubiquitous. I find it so pervasive. I don't even know. And I'm, I'm a tech head that I'm using it half the time, or I don't think about it. I suppose if I thought about it, I would, but GPS apps, Hey, find the best way to 
such and such? Or what's the recommendation on a song? Or just when I log into my streaming apps and it's suggesting, hey, you know what? Based upon what you've done and the way you've rated things, we would suggest this music or this art or or whatever, or this experience while you're driving, take this route. Yeah, it's not faster, but you'll you'll really enjoy these things because I've seen how you click like or don't like on your screensaver and the images that you like or whatever, and this is going to route you that way. And I, I just was like, holy smokes, it's, you know, it's, it's in my life in a way that I really didn't... Um, you know, I, I keep looking for the iRobots. I don't, I'm not looking for just these sort of gentle suggestions. Right. I mean, that's, that's the point. Certainly if you're, you know, working with an information oriented application, you know, something on the internet, Uber, an app, whatever, right. um, AI is almost always there, you know, working in the background, uh, doing, doing a lot to make that happen. You know, whether right. it's, as you said, the recommendations on Amazon or, um, you know, virtually everything. So that in that sense, it it is already becoming like a utility that's that, that's everywhere, right. um, and increasingly, it's going to invade our physical world as well. You know, you're going to begin to see physical robots mm-hmm. uh, more and more, right? Um, in fact, I already see where I live in 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 Silicon Valley in Mountain View, for example, a town nearby. There, there are all these delivery robots running around all the time. Um, really, you're increasingly seeing them in in fast food. Um, establishments and so forth. So I think over the next 10 years, you know, the the the, the physical aspect of this, the actual robotic systems and, and so forth are also going to become a lot more ubiquitous. Before I dive down that rabbit hole, I have a question I meant to ask you earlier that I forgot, which is, do you, th- as you, as you did your research, recognizing, I want to make sure I distinguish between short-term and long-term, recognizing that m- a lot of what you've written, in, in, in particular in Rule of the Robots, is the long term. Here, if you, if you just work through this logically, not emotionally, and you, and you look at how this technology, um, one, can help humans f- flourish, for sure, but, th- but the consequence of that looks like this. And so there are questions we need to work through and how that, um, how that all um, is going to play out. Do you think there, there are jobs that are more resistant to, um, you know, this, this near or mid future of the impact of AI or whether it's as, as organized as a physical robot doing the things that we are, we would maybe consider as general AI and something like that. Um, but I'm wondering if there, there, you know, if I'm a kid and I'm wanting to go out and start a career path, is there an area that it enhances my world, but it, you know, I'm probably, if not inoculated, I'm certainly resistant. This in industry or organization, where I can still make a living wage, but I don't. I'm not looking over my shoulder to see if a machine's going to take over tomorrow. Yeah, um, in in fact, I think there are at least three categories of of, of you know types of jobs that I would point to that I think are going to be pretty resilient, at least for the foreseeable future. Maybe not forever. I mean, so, you know, someday if we really have human level artificial intelligence or super intelligence, right? And then at that point, you kind of begin to wonder who has a job, right? If there's right. a machine that literally outperforms us in every way, but that that's yeah. far in the future, right? I mean, that's decades at a minimum, it might be 50 or a hundred years. Um, there's a, a lot of debate over that. But prior to that, the, I, I think the areas that are safest from near-term automation 
are first of all, what we think of as skilled trade jobs. So this would be like electricians, plumbers, people like that. Sure. Basically these are jobs that require a lot of mobility and dexterity and problem solving in very unpredictable environments, right? So, so think in terms of what a plumber faces, right? Going to different houses, totally different environments, rusty pipes, you know, a, a big mess. Right. Um, every, every situation is completely different, right? Um, to build a robot that could handle that, you would need, you, you know, science fiction technology. You, you need a robot like uh, C-3PO from, from Star right. Wars, right? Some, something at that level, right? right? And that's still clearly science fiction. So right. those kinds of jobs are, are definitely safe. And I think that jobs of that type are really the best bet for especially people that are not oriented to going to college or university. I mean, you know, those skilled trade jobs and, and, and many people probably who are going to college now um, who are going to college just because everyone says they should go to college and not because they really want to be there would be better off pursuing one of those skilled um, trade jobs. Uh, the second category would be jobs that are genuinely creative. So if you're you know, building something new, thinking outside of the box, uh, being, you know, genuinely creative, whether that's an artistic type job or um, maybe a lawyer that is coming up with new strategies in a courtroom or coming up with new business strategies, uh, obviously research and engineering type jobs where you're actually creating something that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. I, I think that if in these kinds of roles where you, you are truly creative, I think that artificial intelligence is going to be a very powerful tool that will amplify your capabilities. But I think it'll be quite a while before AI can really replace you. So, mm -hmm. so it's it's more um, a complement rather than a substitute for what you're doing. So, so in that sense, for people that are in those kinds of roles, AI is gonna be a, a positive force that will you know, enhance their, their capability. Um, that's not to say that, that there aren't, that, you know, there is research into creative AI systems for sure. You already see AI systems, for example, that can uh, write original music and and paint pictures and 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 so forth. So we are seeing evolution down that path. But I think for the most part, um, it's going to continue to be a tool that people utilize um, for some time to come. And then the third category of jobs are those jobs that are really that, that really require deep. Uh, complex interaction with people and, and, and building relationships with people. So think in terms of a nurse that, that has to have empathy for her patients and, and, and uh, develop that kind of a relationship with patients, or maybe a business consultant that really needs a very deep understanding of, of the needs of a client. Um, building those kinds of relationships is something that I think machines are not going to be suited to for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. Although once again, there is, you know, progress there. We definitely already have AI systems that are beginning to understand and exhibit emotion. For example, um, there are chatbots that provide basic mental health counseling for people already that have been shown to be quite effective. So you do see AI pushing into areas that we might think of as kind of uniquely human, right? You already see that. But still, I would say, you know, in the, for those jobs where you really need to build a sophisticated interpersonal relationship, um, I think it's going to be a long time before AI can do that. So those jobs are also relatively safe. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things that you, when, I, I don't know, remember if this is originally how I came across this conversation, but one of the things that really caught my 
ear early was your conversation around uh, universal basic income, UBI. I, I was introduced to that idea. I know it's been around in one form or the other by a number of people, by Andrew Yang during the one of the during the presidential campaign. And I haven't done any research into the area by that my libertarian entrepreneurial sensibilities uh, resist the idea, but I, I've heard you speak about it. I've heard Andrew speak about it. Why, why, why do you think this is a way to help um, me and my audience think about it's a way to offset some of the risks that you see through this uh, future job disruption? Or do you still well, hold that idea? I, I do. Um, you know, as you say, the idea has been around for quite a while, and I've been talking about it in in a number of my books. Um, and and as you say, Andrew Yang really helped put this on the radar, right? For for a right. lot of people, I know a lot of people were introduced to it um, for the first time. Now, I would maybe differ with Andrew a bit in that he obviously advocates that we should have a basic income right away, and. Um, I, I have never really, you know, made that argument. But I, what I do think is that it's a very important idea and, and at least one part of a solution for the future if we really get into this situation where we do have technological unemployment, where um, we simply have a lot of people left behind, right? And there aren't enough jobs to go around. If, if and when we get into a situation like that, uh, I do think that a, a, a universal basic income is... Uh, going to be, you know, a, a very important tool. And the advantage of a, of a basic income is that unlike unemployment benefits, for example, you give it to everyone, not just people that don't have a job. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that one of what that means is that you don't create an incentive for people not to work, right? Because, you know, everyone will get the UBI, they'll get some payment per month. Mm -hmm. um, so they have kind of an income floor, right? A, a floor below which their income can't drop. Mm -hmm. But it is still the case that anyone who does work or maybe starts their own business, does something entrepreneurial, is clearly going to be better off, right, than someone who just stays at home and does nothing and, and, and collects their basic income because right. uh, you, don't, you don't lose that basic income if you go to work, right? right? Whereas with unemployment benefits and other types of our safety net, you know, welfare and so forth, that's that's the problem is that if you actually go out and do anything productive and start to earn money, then you're going to lose that, that benefit you had before. And for many people that creates a kind of a, a you know, a poverty trap basically where there is no incentive to, because you're not necessarily going to be better off by, by taking right. some. Action. So that's one of the main advantages of a UBI, but um, you know, the basic case is if, if we do get into a situation where machines are doing more and more of the jobs, there aren't enough jobs to go away or to go around, then people obviously will need an income to survive, but they also will need an income to, to spend money in the economy, right? The economy depends on demand, right? And, you know, if you're a factory making something that you're going to sell, uh, there have to be customers out there, not just people that want the product that you can sell, but people that have the, the means to buy it, right? They have to have the income, the, the purchasing power to buy it. Um, right. So at some point that will be a problem as well, right? If you have too much unemployment or if income becomes too concentrated, uh, you know, a few wealthy people are basically hoovering up all the income and everyone else is kind of left behind and there aren't enough consumers out there to really drive the economy. So you need to have a more, you know, a, a more reasonable distribution of income. And, and the UBI is also one way to, to do that. So, 
you know, again, I think it's a really important idea for the future. And I think we should be doing experiments with it, pilot projects, so that we can learn more about it, how to implement it. Um, so that it is a tool that's available to us uh, if and when we get into this situation in the future. How do economists react when you put forward something like this, just in your personal discussions? It, I wonder, for me, one of the things when I hear UPI, especially when Andrew was t talking about it, because you're right, it is different. And I, I like listening to Andrew a lot. Um, I, I have in me, though, this really strong resistance and skepticism to the government doing, um, you know, a program like this. I just feel like history is full of examples where, in spite of our noble endeavor or our very best intentions, the unintended consequences are not a thriving free market economy when they step in, whether it's, to your point earlier, uh, unemployment benefits, you know, a safety net. Here, I want to. I want something to help, whether it's um, single moms or it's the young or it's the elderly or it's the mentally um, uh, unstable. It just just to kind of you know get their sea legs underneath them, provide a safety net. But the idea with all of those things is it's a temporary thing to get them to a more permanent, productive. Uh, situation and they would you know the dignity of a job they would love that and they can pour it back into uh, you know their productivity then they get to pour back into the community and so there's a safety net for the next group and some cases that's worked okay and in other many cases it has not worked okay and I'm just wondering if there are economists and I know there are economists that look at these things from a wide variety if they are um, whether it's because of a result of um, a job market that is being that's, that's going to be impacted in a significant way through technology or any other reason, are you getting a lot of um, uh, confirmation of the way you're, you're imagining this, or is there still a lot of resistance from economists? Oh, certainly there's, there's resistance. As I said, certainly in the current situation, right, where we've got a labor shortage and inflation, I mean, I, I don't think you'd many, find many economists who would say we ought to have a UBI right now, right? Right. Um, and I don't think we should either. I just think that in the future, it's going to be one important tool. Now, you know, obviously, if we do find ourselves in a, in a position with widespread technological unemployment, uh, people will demand something, right? They're not going to just sit there and starve because they don't right. have an income. Um, and there are different proposals, different solutions you can think of. One, one way is to have the government create jobs for everyone. You know, artificial government, you know, work for the government jobs, which are guaranteed uh, government jobs. I mean, and personally, I think that would probably be a bigger disaster. I mean, imagine yeah. the bureaucracy you'd have to create and then you'd have to monitor everyone, make sure they show up for their, you know, probably a bullshit job. Right. right. Um, you know, and people you'd have all kinds of disciplinary problems and all kinds of stuff. Um, it would be much more expensive than, than a universal basic income probably, which would be very simple, right? right. So, uh, you know, or another way to solve it that some people would advocate is to go full socialism or communism, right? Let the government take over the means of production and, and you know, you know, each according to his need and all of that, right? I don't mm -hmm. think we would really want that either, right? So mm -hmm. the truth is there, you, I, I think there's not a solution that everyone's going to be totally happy with, but I would say that uh, a UBI or guaranteed income is the one that is absolutely the most compatible with capitalism, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and in fact, you can look 
you know, historically people like Friedrich Hayek and, and Milton Friedman, you know, famous mm-hmm. people on the right mm-hmm. supported some variation of this, right? This is mm-hmm. this what they proposed, right? So it's actually an idea that's it's gotten a, a lot of support um, for more, you know, conservative type people. Um, so it's definitely not, you know, just a lefty idea at all. Um, but the, but the bottom line is that we'll have to do something, right? So so this may be the you, if you want to think of it as the least bad right. solution to the problem, that 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 may be one way to think of it. I think you're one of the things that I'm taking away from not just this our, this conversation, but uh, the other conversations I've listened to and what I've read is we need to do something. Doing nothing is going to be a uh, a consequence that none of us want to be spectacularly unprepared, even if some of our solutions are just stop gaps until we figure out a better long-term solution. But these things are, uh, you know, complicated and, uh, and to ignore it. I, one of the, I guess one of the things I really like is, um, look, this is coming at a pace that's going to surprise, even though we're in a current market situation that looks like this, a number of or- people in jobs that aren't really even paying attention one day are going to wake up and their industry is going to be significantly impacted. I was having a conversation with a guy who writes for Rotten Tomatoes and I said, do you think AI is going to t- take over writing movie scripts and things like that? And he said, not in the near future, because when I did some research, I discovered that in the movies that Tom Cruise runs in, he makes the most mo- That's the most successful movie. Really? And so um, in our little thought experiments, we see AI and uh, tech coming and saying, well, these are the scripts that perform, or these are the movies that perform. Let's look at the scripts and let's just make more of those. And then they might just make a movie of Tom Cruise running everywhere and, and nobody would go and watch that uh, movie. But as they, as over time, they get all these random de- uh, data elements, which is where I want to go kind of next in sort of this deep, deep AI, this deep thinking and it's able to correlate things that maybe human beings aren't great at, or certainly not in a general population, and pull these things together. And it could start informing how scripts are read, how you know what the next movies should look like, how we should film it in these conditions. Especially if you're doing it in a back to our uh, we're both fans of Star Trek, you know, on Holodeck Seven, and you just have the computers that control the props and the scripts and the um, and the camera angles or whatever, and maybe even someday just the avatars of the people. That are that are in the movie, um, it seems pretty compelling. How do you, when you think about sort of this this idea? Um, I think the CEO of DeepMind said, "Let's solve for intelligence, and then let intelligence solve the rest of the problems." How do you think about that when you're thinking about sort of these things? In other words, when the computers are smart enough that they're thinking beyond what we're thinking, and whatever that is, that seems like a scary time. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it can be scary, but I actually think that's the the greatest promise of artificial intelligence—the idea that we will build this this you know resource which will be available to us, which will amplify our intelligence, our creativity, and will allow us to you know solve these these big problems that we face. Right? I mean, in fact, I think AI is going to be indispensable if you want to have a future with with more medical advances, more scientific advances. Um, we want to address, you know, problems like climate change. Um, we're going to need, you know, breakthroughs in artificial intelligence to, to make that happen, and that's starting to happen already. I mean, DeepMind um, 
has already built a system called AlphaFold, which uh, has really kind of revolutionized biomedicine by helping scientists understand um, the configuration of protein molecules, how they, they fold into specific shapes when they're fabricated in the cell. And this is something that you know, uh, scientists have been working on for, for at least 50 years trying to figure out. And DeepMind was able to essentially solve the problem in, in about two years with their system. Um, hmm. And as a result of that, you're going to see, I think, a lot of progress in biomedicine, um, in synthetic biology and areas like this because of these, these breakthroughs. And you're going to begin to see AI having that impact across the board in many, many different areas. And so, you know, it's not just about AI itself or, or about computers. It's going to be, begin to, to impact every aspect of science and technology, uh, you know, transportation, energy. Um, you know, agriculture, everything is going to be sort of accelerated by, by this new capability that we have. And that's the great promise that, that I, is the reason I'm optimistic about it. It's the reason that I am a proponent of artificial intelligence. Right. I just think that we need to worry about, uh, you know, a lot of the concerns that come with this, the, the potential for unemployment being one and many others, security risks, um, the potential for AI to be weaponized, um, you know, right. bias and algorithms, these are all things that we really have to be concerned about. They're real risks. Um, but what we have to do is figure out how to address those risks while still supporting the advance of the technology, because I, I do think it's going to be, it's going to bring enormous benefits. One of the things I love about your discussions are, while you could go into, and there are a lot of people who do go into, um, uh, you know, whether it's the weaponization or security and privacy. Uh, I just had a guest on yesterday who was talking about how AI is helping win actually the security war. And uh, he calls them white hats and black hats, run down black hats in a really strong way. And he's actually pretty bullish now on, um, as his industry is using these tools to very quickly root out, not just stop uh, some of the things with the cyber attacks, because there's so much, uh, the nation states that are behind or um, uh, the governments that are behind helping to develop these things, whether it's the U.S., Israel and others, and how they can uh, sort of do counter, you know, stop attack and then find very quickly use tools to root out where it's coming from. And so it's a really cool conversation. How do you think we in America? So right now we've so far we've been talking sort of in general uh, about the impact on AI and the future of jobs. How are we doing as a country and keeping up just in the marketplace, do you think? Because to some degree, it's going to be our AI against your AI in how we adopt it and how we use it to keep a competitive advantage. Or do you not think about that at all? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's very important. Certainly, you know, the United States is at the leading edge of this technology. I mean, we're, we're um, doing a lot of the innovation. We have a lot of the best people, but... Certainly other countries are competing against us. And the one that we have to worry the, mo the most about is China, right? China is also making enormous investments in AI. Um, by some measures, they're, you know, they're already in some ways ahead of us. And certainly they've got more people working on it. Um, yeah. So, you know, AI is, is um, I mean, it, it's a technology that is strategic, right? It's going to as I said, it's going to be ubiquitous, is going to um, impact industrial competitiveness, but it's also clearly, you know, a national security um, technology, right? It's going to be used in weapons. It's going to be used by intelligence agencies. Um, 
and so forth. So it's it's, it's really critical that, that we stay ahead of that competition with China, right? We don't mm -hmm. want, if they win the AI race, um, especially if they, they beat us in achieving something like human level or super intelligence, uh, AI that that will be you know a disaster for us right so yeah we really need to make sure that we continue to invest in this technology and stay ahead do you think we have the I mean all of this resides on our ability to some degree to compute like we got to have uh, you know in order for a machine to be a machine it's got to have the ability to process and compute and access to data and um, I remember. Uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with black blockchain, but probably five or six years ago, uh, maybe as recent as four years ago, I was at a blockchain conference because I love this idea of the ledger and um, uh, you know Web 3.0. It's really interesting to me. And one of the speakers, I almost want to, I'm almost certain he's from IBM, but certainly one of the leading tech organizations in the world. And they said something to the effect of all of these Fortune 1000 companies have a blockchain philosophy and a, um, you know, a, a plan. We don't have the computational power to do 1% of the infrastructure they're talking about. It just does not exist on earth. And, um, and then when you add the complexity of rare earth materials and supply chain, this is all pre-pandemic, by the way, the, he, we're, we're a way away, a ways from if this technology works in the way that we want for it to be practical, and that was around blockchain. Do you think we're in the same way with um, a, a broad adoption of artificial intelligence and some of these things? I, I don't mean mechanization necessarily or automation, like the claw in the, the dump truck that we talked about, but just in this sort of these everyday things, I wonder if we've got the compute power to roll it out in the way that if we had unlimited power, it could be rolled out. Well, all of this is, you know, founded on Moore's law and the fact that compute power is still accelerating. Uh, it's getting harder and harder in some ways to continue to build hardware. To, to, but, but, you know, for the most part, they're figuring out how to do it. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, there's a lot of the breakthroughs that we see in AI over the last few years are founded on on scaling to larger and faster systems. So that's that's still happening. Um, but, you know, even if that's not sustainable, I think that there's a lot of research into new techniques, making things more efficient and so forth. So I, I think, you know, we're going to continue to see advances there. Two last questions. I know we're coming up at the top of the hour. One is, what's next for you? And you can answer this in either order, either that you're writing about or you're researching. Um, I'm hoping it's something like my buddy, my AI robot, Ed, and life and story of how you two are exploring the world or something fun like that. But what's next for you that you're thinking about and writing? And two, I don't want people to come away from this conversation um, unnecessarily alarmed. I, I don't. I want to be a realist. Look, these are things that are we should be aware of and uh, understand. But what practical things do you think either people can educate themselves on in addition to reading your books and, and to think about whether for themselves or for their kids or for their grandkids going forward, or even that they should be talking to their lobbyists and their congresspeople about, and look, here's how, as these technologies are going to impact our culture and our world, um, how I think it should play out. So those two things, what do you think people next step should be? And what's next up for you, either in writing or some of the things that you're up to? 
Right. Um, well, I mean, in terms of me, I, my, my latest book, Rule of the Robots, was just published last year. Um, so I'm not really focused on writing a new book yet. I'm, um, I do do a lot of speaking engagements. I go around and talk to different businesses right. and organizations and so forth. Um, so I'm kind of focused on that and, mm -hmm. and also learning everything I can about how things are progressing. And that, at some point, I think will you know, lead to, to the direction of a, of a new book in the future. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, advice for people, I think, yes, educate yourselves on, on AI and on the risks and opportunities that, that are going to come with it. I mean, I, and that's really what I tried to do in Rule of the Robots, right, to take, take people through that and, and show them um, how the technology works and, uh, you know, what, what the potential risks are and, and what the opportunities are. Um, and then also, as we were saying earlier, when you asked me what areas are um, safest from automation, I mean, you should probably be thinking about that in terms of your own career, right? Are you doing something creative or something that um, relies on a lot of interaction with people, um, right. something that requires a lot of dexterity in an unpredictable environment? Because these are the kinds of things that are going to be safest from automation. And if, if, if in fact you are sitting in front of a computer doing the same thing over and over again, you, you definitely need to be thinking in terms of your career that, that this job might not be there forever, right? So you, you want to see what you can do to transition to something else. My years and opportunities as a potential plumber are long behind me, but hopefully podcasting can, uh, can still be in that area for me. Right. I think that's that's in a category of something that should be fairly safe. <laughs> I sure hope so. Well, Martin Ford, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And we'll make sure that we have links to uh, your books and what you're up to next. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. My great pleasure. And if you've enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time on the Q-Tech Experience. See you, everybody.